0: I thought about uh, letting the kids see these next few pictures, but it might have brought back painful memories for you. It'll be funny enough because you may see yourself in one of these pictures. You know, uh, the big deal about Christmas for a lot of people is visiting Santa. Now, I realize that this is church, but I couldn't help but be reminded of my experience of visiting Santa. I was like some of these kids. Maybe some of your kids were like these. Let's take a few looks here. Really? Is this necessary? I didn't want a ball for Christmas. I'm out of here. I am out of here. Look. This mean man won't let go of me." Or how about, "'Honey, let go of mommy.'" Look at she's like flying away from her child. Or, "'Whose idea was this?' He's upset, isn't he? "'Hey, I'd be scared too. Look at that guy. Holy smokes.'" "'Take that, you brute.'" At least someone is smiling. Santa's having a good time. Well, this morning, when we think about kids, uh, I do have a grandson. He has already become the most photographed child in history. It's been three weeks. But we make a big deal about getting pictures of our kids at the right time with Santa. Some of you, you post it on Facebook, or you'll share a video on Vimeo. If you could write a press release, you would have done it already. But there was a kid who was born 2,000 years ago. His name was Jesus Christ. And how did the world find out that he was born? If we were going to write a press release today about his birth, what would it say? And if you were going to be the press agent for Jesus the child born in Bethlehem, Who would have you released it with? Who would you have gone to first? Who would get that exclusive interview with Oprah or Barbara Walters or maybe if you were a sports fan, maybe Bob Costas? You see, our text this morning gives us a very interesting view of this because in Luke chapter 2 verse 8, we see the announcement of Jesus' birth was made to a group of totally unlikely people. And it was so fitting that our third candle was the shepherd's candle because that's who we're going to look at today. A few weeks ago, Denny brought us a view from Joseph's vantage point. Today, we'll look from the shepherd's vantage point. And the question I want to ask you, if God had chosen to make the announcement to you, how would you have responded. Now as we look, we've already read the text, so we won't stand and read the text today, but it is amazing how God's Word can be in your mind. I think the very first uh, Christmas pageant that I was in, I was a narrator and I had to memorize a large section of Luke chapter 2. And as I was rehearsing this performance again for you this morning, I realized I had memorized it in the King James Version. I got here today looking at my Bible, realizing this is the New American Standard Version, and I realized that I'm going to have to now do this completely from memory from 40 years ago. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields keeping watch of their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And in the King James it says, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said, fear not, for I bring to you great tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, what which is Christ the Lord, and this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger." So let's look at the facts this morning. Look at verse 8, the presence of the shepherds. Now there are two views of shepherds, right? As we look at this, why shepherds, kind of the negative view, and there's a positive view. The negative view goes something like this. Out of all of Jerusalem, why in the world would you have presented the Christ child to the shepherds? These are a band of kind of out there hillbilly types. They're out in the fields, they don't get in town much. And the bottom line is, it takes a lot of shepherds to watch the sheep. It's just not one solitary shepherd, they're constantly keeping watch on their flocks. Now, it's intriguing because for some they would say this was the lowest, most despised of social groups. Some have in history said they were just a bit above the lepers who were unclean. And in fact, in Israel's society, their work kept them from being able to go to the temple. They were ceremonially unclean. But there's something else that was interesting, if in fact they were ceremonially unclean, ironically. What were they doing for the temple? They were caring for the sheep that oftentimes would have been sacrificed to God because of their work. Now, I think the positive view is that the shepherd in the Bible has got to be positive. I'm going to take a more positive view. The You went to the shepherd because that is the illustration, the allegory, the symbolism that we see throughout the Bible. Think about this. Shepherds who are supposed to lead us as a flock in 1 Peter 5. Psalm 23, arguably the most uh, quoted psalm in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. And in fact, it was while Moses was tending sheep, right, that He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. So I think the shepherd's motif wasn't a negative one, I think it was a positive one. And in fact, these shepherds are caring for the very sheep, as I've mentioned before, that would be used as sacrifices in the temple. And the conclusion is this, there is this duality as we look at the shepherds. Their position and work would have been dirty and even unclean. In fact, any of you have done any any sheep herding recently? Yeah, none of us. But think about, um, I, I think about that TV show, I don't know what the name of it, it's got all these like disgusting jobs, and the guy does, it, does them for, what's it called? Dirty jobs. Dirty jobs. <laughs> the, uh, shepherds could be qualified for one of those dirty jobs. And in fact, uh, it, they, they were despised, and Jesus says in Isaiah that He's our shepherd, but He was despised. He was despised. Now, it says, what a little word here, if you look at verse 8, these shepherds were keeping watch or keeping their flock close to them by night. And in fact, we know that they were grazing uh, these sheep, uh, fattening them up for ultimately their slaughter in the temple. Now, these shepherds couldn't Be in the city. They couldn't be in Bethlehem. And so oftentimes, all these sheep, all that were kind of kept away from the city. And in fact, because of Jewish law, the Talmud says that um, the flocks had to be only kept in the wilderness areas. Now, I've been to Israel and I can kind of, and I've been to Bethlehem and I can kind of picture where Bethlehem is. And, And if you look out to the east and the west, there's just open areas where. Back in the day, shepherds could have been uh, grazing their sheep, and so I can picture it. So, we see that there's this presence, but then something happens in verse 9. I call it the paralysis of the shepherds. It says the angel stood before them. Now, we think that the angel is probably Gabriel. Uh, Check out Luke chapter 1, verse 11, and what is the common emotion of all the shepherds because of this angel appearing? They're what? They're afraid. It says suddenly they they stood before him and they they were terribly frightened. They use the word fear also in this text. Why were they frightened? Why would an angel coming to them frighten them? Well, typically in the Old Testament, when an angel came to visit you, was it good news or was it bad news? Oftentimes, it was bad news. You're going to die. Something's going to happen. The death angel visited all the homes in Egypt and the firstborn of all the Egyptians were taken, right? And so they see this angel, they're wide awake, they aren't dreaming this stuff, and the bottom line is they're a little worried. What's going to happen? Well, we know that Jesus is the ultimate good shepherd in John 10. He's also the Lamb of God that's going to be sacrificed for the world in John one twenty nine, And so, I think there's a play on words. There's a symbolism here that He goes to shepherds and ultimately there'll be a, a shepherd that will be the shepherd of all eternity, and yet that baby was also to be sacrificed. He was the ultimate lamb of God. So they, they were startled by this guy. This bad news, this initial response of fear caused them to be a little skeptical. But we see that there's something else that happens with these guys. Even though they're a little fearful, look what happens in verses 11 and 12. They make the proclamation to the shepherds that in the city of David, there's going to be a Savior that's born. Now, this announcement is significant for two reasons. It's the message that the Messiah has been born. These Jewish people have been under the yoke and bondage of Rome for a long time, and they're looking for a Messiah, but were they looking for a spiritual Messiah that would forgive them of their sins? No, they were looking for a political Messiah, a deliverer that would rescue them from Rome. So they kind of miss it, but they're excited about this. But back then, they're looking for that Messiah. It also fulfilled uh, the pro- prophecy of Micah 5:2 that in the city of David, the Bethlehem, uh, which is near Jerusalem, you can, in fact, you can see from Bethlehem over to Jerusalem. When you go to Israel. So it, it's very significant. And there are three descriptions of this Savior of the world, this Jesus, this Christ child. Look at the three words there in verse 11. Circle them in your Bible Savior, Christ, and Lord. Three different descriptions of Jesus. And I want to suggest that the Savior um, description is that He's going to be a deliverer, a deliverer from enemies. And in fact, this is the one of only two places in the gospel where He's referred to as a Savior, other being John 4, 42, and it's when the men of Sychar confess Jesus as the Savior of the world. So, they're looking for political deliverer, but He's a Savior for them spiritually. Secondly, He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, He's the anointed one, the one they were looking for. And then lastly, He's the Lord, He's the Master. That's that covenant name for God. 37 more times in the book of Luke, he'll use this word, uh, Lord. The very interesting thing is that this is the only time in the entire New Testament, even though it's in the Old Testament, that those three words are used together in the same sentence, in the same verse, Savior, Christ, and Lord. So then uh, we see, and I won't, uh, because I'll get into angels next week and what they did, Skip on down to verse 15, what they do about this? And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem. Let us go there, and they've got to see what, if this thing uh, what has happened. Now notice they want to see this thing has happened. It's not see if this thing has happened. They go from this kind of fear to now they're curious, and they've got to go check it out for themselves. And this idea of finding it is the idea of finding something after a prolonged search. So, it wouldn't have been hard. They're going to go check out Bethlehem. They probably went to each of the uh, looking at the inns for them, but they found him. Bethlehem was not a big place, and they found him. And these guys are not easily fooled. They're going to check out the facts. You know, if the angel said it, you know, did I really get this right? Was I sleeping? Was this a dream? This is not a fantasy. This is the Messiah. And I want to ask you, when God gets your attention with something that is kind of mind-blowing, we've got a great example of what do you do with this? Initially, they were fearful. Oftentimes, people who are far from God are fearful because they're not sure what they're going to get themselves into. But once you begin to check out the facts of the gospel, what is our response? Well, I think they give us an interesting response here. Because they're checking it out. There, there's a discussion among themselves. They began saying to one another, wait, what happened? And then there's a decision that's made. Let, let's check this out. If you expect people to make a decision for Jesus Christ without discussing it with people that, that are important to them, you're kind of putting the cart in front of the horse. We, we so often want to pray that people come to faith in Christ and they hear the gospel and they just make an immediate response. That's not going to happen for most people. They want to discuss it. They want to reason with it. They want to check it out for themselves. But then once they make a decision, is there any dilly-dallying? No. There's no delay. They're, boom, they're on it. They're moving on it. And they go and they check it out. On Friday, my friend John Beam went from death to life from being far from God to making a decision for Jesus Christ. Now, you don't know who John Beam is, and, and, uh, but he's a guy I've been sharing Christ with for two and a half years, well, actually, uh, l- almost two years. It was right after Christmas in early 2011 when he heard the music playing at the community center at Arroyo Vista, and he snuck in the back door. And it was in January, and I was doing this thing where we were writing a prayer. What is God's prayer? What's our prayer this year for our church? He didn't know God from a hole in the wall. He had been far from God for a long time. He had enough courage to write this prayer request on his card. Pray that I have the courage to come back next week. And he came back the next week and the next week and the next week. Well, like every good pastor, after three visits, he goes from a suspect to a prospect. <laughs> and so I called him and said, Hey, hey, John, let's 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 have lunch together. All by. We're going to In N Out. No, we're going for Mexican food. And so we went to Lalo's restaurant in, in Moore Park. And we sat down, and I said, why did you come to church? He says, it's time. I said, time for what? And then he began to tell me in subsequent lunch appointments about his life and how his wife died of a horrible cancer that took her life, and she wasted away for over a year. And then about the third lunch appointment, he said, I'm mad at God why would he do this to her? She didn't deserve this. So, most of 2011 was spent just processing with him his grief, tears in his eyes, wondering why God took his wife. Well, as time went along, he he said, well, if I'm going to come to church, I ought to have a Bible. I said, that's a good thing Well, what kind of Bible should I have? Well, I had a few to show him, and I got him his first Bible, and that was the the summer of 2011. And he got a Bible, and he started reading it. He said, well, I don't know what I'm reading. I said, well, start in John 1. I know, but I don't understand it. So then we went to meet to understand what John 1 meant. And then we met, and we took him through a little devotional thing, and he began to read that. So last spring, I'm saying, John, it's he joined our men's group. So he's studying this men's fraternity material. That some of us, and he goes, "I got some of, I got some baggage." I go, "I know." And so he 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 began to step out and just take little steps. And one time I said, John, it's like you're standing on this cliff of decision, but you're afraid. You're afraid to to really step out in faith. And then he said something that so many people who are far from God, and it's a false thing they believe, he goes, God could never accept me. I've got so much junk in my life, how could He ever forgive me? And he had this false view that if he kind of cleaned himself up, he'd get to a level for where then God could accept him and he could accept Christ. And for six more months, it was like every minute, he's just right on the edge. And now he's on the setup team. Now he's bringing treats. I mean, he's invested. He's tithing. He's doing all this stuff, but he still doesn't know Jesus. And he'd say, yeah, the good man upstairs is looking after me. And then he'd say stuff like, my kids, man, they they don't want anything to do with church. I remember he bribed them to come to Father's Day. I think he gave them actual money to show up. And then he'd arrange like times for me to meet his daughters, and I walked in this cancer walk so because their mom died of cancer, and so I walked with them around the track over and over again. I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many different kinds of means and different things I said, but he followed this path just like the shepherds. He was afraid, like, I don't know. And then he got curious, and I'll tell you the end of the story when we get to the next point. So look what happens, the the shepherds in verses 17 and 18, and when they had seen this, when they finally saw the Christ child, they made known the statement which has been told them and all who heard it, not just the shepherds, but everyone they talked about, wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. You see, this is the logical progression of the gospel. and This is why the shepherds were given the gospel because this is an example for us when we deal with other people. First, people hear the revelation of the gospel. They hear the truth. And before they can get to number two, they're either fearful of it or they check it out or they're cautious. But then secondly, they come to a point, like it says in Romans 9, that they believe it. They believe it and you many of you know in this room the day that you gave your life to Christ you believed the truth of the scriptures thirdly then they pursue it and that's what these shepherds begin to do they pursue it they embrace Christ and then you see in verse 17 fourthly then they tell others about it the shepherds were the first hearers of the gospel this is why they're important they're the first believers of the gospel and they're the first preachers of the gospel. You see, we think, oh, they got to go through 93 weeks of discipleship, and then they can share their faith. No, they come to create faith in Christ, that's the best time for them to start opening their mouths. They go, what if they give us false doctrine? We'll sort it out. Let them tell others about Jesus, because that's the progression. They're going to hear, they're going to believe, and then they want to proclaim. And after their encounter with Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they couldn't help but tell others. And so, I want to ask you a question this morning, are we making known what we know about Jesus? You see, we don't have to know everything. We have to know this one simple thing, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was headed in the wrong direction. And as Psalm says, God lifted me up out of the miry clay. I told you when I came to faith in Christ as a six-year-old back in first grade at my little Christian school, but I didn't tell you that it wasn't until eighth grade, between eighth and ninth grade, that I understood that salvation for me was more than that fire insurance policy, if you know what I mean, right? It wasn't just like, oh, I'm not going to hell, thank goodness, But there was this understanding where I came to the conclusion that I wanted Jesus not only to be my Savior, but to be my Lord. Now, we don't know how the story ends. We don't know how these shepherds then progressed in their faith, but I believe that they were the very first Christ followers right here in Luke chapter 2. And we have to give people the time to progress through their, their questions about faith, One of the people that I enjoy talking with is Rod, and he's sitting right over here, and he's like going to shoot me right now because every time I talk to him, I say, hey, have you had any interesting conversations? The guy's a walking evangelist, and he's talking to people. He meets people in restaurants, and he's telling people he's meeting, hey, why don't we have coffee? There's some real advantages in evangelism when you're retired, isn't it? Do I hear an amen to that? All right. See, you, some of you are retiring from jobs, you're just got, you're getting ready to get busy for the kingdom. By the way, there's another group of you who have such an awesome opportunity to share your faith. How many of you might call yourself in this audience, a term of endearment from my heart to yours, but you would consider yourself mothers, the other word is soccer moms. You're out on a field doing something with kids most most year, Raise your hand. If you're a mom, you have kids in sports. Look at all these evangelists out here. They're out there hours. I mean, they, they, it takes a logistics or a math major to get kids in the right place at the right time, fully clothed and in their right mind. And there's a whole bunch of other parents like that sitting on fields, hours on end, and this is the chance for us to share with them. People have a lot of time in their hands when they're watching t-ball with (laughs) five-year-olds. Worse yet, soccer with eight-year-olds. And even worse, basketball with nine-year-olds, all the above. And so, people need a chance to hear the story. So, Friday, John and I, he says, I've got to tell you something. I was wondering, because I said, when you pray to receive Christ, could I be there? So he told me about this set of experiences where he was fishing by himself, and a family was there at 6 o'clock in the morning with two little kids. He said, it's kind of early, why are you here? And the guy said, because I'm fishing for my dinner. And it pricked his soft heart because he, he knew that as a Christ follower, God loved that family, but He hadn't yet given his life completely to Christ. He's just still on that edge, and he says, and he said it was the first time he had ever done it. This is two years into this now. He said, can we pray that we catch a lot of fish? I thought there was a guy who told some disciples to put your your nets on the other side, so they fished for a while, and they were just catching these little perch and not much. He said, God, you've got to answer this prayer. We're catching this guy's dinner." And the way he said it to me Friday, he was so sincere. I said, well, what happened? He goes, John, it was unbelievable. I prayed again. I threw my my line in there, and I caught the biggest perch I've ever caught. Now, I know nothing about fish, but he showed me the size of this fish, and he has a size 12 foot, and it was four inches longer than the size of his foot on the ground. It was huge. It was probably like a seven pounder, and it had meat on it. And the guy looked at him and he said, God answered your prayer. He said, I know. <laughs> he was kind of stunned. Well, there was a set of other circumstances that happened. But the bottom line is that he kneeled on November 20th in the sand and said, God, I need you. So I said, did you asked Jesus to be your Savior? He said, well, not in so many words. I said, so you're still standing on the cliff? You kneeled down. You said you need Him, but you didn't ask Jesus to be your Savior? He goes, is that what I got to do? I said, John, we've talked about this. He goes, and we're at love. He goes, he pushed away as he played. He goes, now I'm losing my appetite. I said, oh, I don't want to discourage you, but you're so close. He goes, I give up. What do I need to do?" And again, I, and I've gone through the gospel 30 times, at least. So we walked outside Lalo's, we're standing in the parking lot, which is kind of weird for dude dudes standing in a dark parking lot. I'm sure somebody thinking we're doing some drug deal here, you know, it's like, what are they doing out there? And I said, let's pray. I said, do you want to pray? He said, can I just follow Your Word so I get it right this time? I said, I think you had it right the first time. I'm just witnessing what you've already done. And he closed his eyes and he said, Dear Jesus, and he repeated these words I know I'm a sinner. I need you. Would you forgive me? Come into my life and change me from the inside out. I know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and purchased my place in heaven and paid for the penalty of my sins. And this was big with me with him. I kept talking, and I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I now put my life into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. And he prayed that prayer, and tears came down his cheek, and he said, on Tuesday, I'm getting a tattoo with my daughter. And then we discussed what the tattoo would say, and he's landed on this, honor God, love your family, December 14th, 2012 now he's scared to death because next sunday he's coming to our church to publicly declare his faith and you got to pray cuz this is touch and go for him cuz he knows he cuz he brought it up he said now i suppose i've seen you do this at church before when someone trusts christ they've got to give a testimonial or uh, a testament I said, yeah, you get to tell your story. Would you pray with me that John's decision would be life-changing? But more importantly, would you pray with me that during this Christmas season that you would have the opportunity to share the greatest news in the world to someone who's farther or far away from God? We're not just doing Christmas Eve to have a nice little service. That's why there's hundreds of those cards that you can take today to give to a friend. And so, what do we learn from the, from the, shepherd, the shepherds today? I think there are three spo- responses to Jesus that we run into from people today. First of all, some people are fearful of Him. They were initially, verse 10. The shepherds were fearful and afraid. They... they, they they didn't quite understand what was going on. And some of the people we talk with have misinterpretations about God or misperceptions, and they see evil things that happen in the world or people who they love die, or they've seen Christians not quite live the way they should, and they're, they're confused. And so oftentimes, because of fear, people keep from taking that next step. God has to move people from fear to faith. Well, that's not us. You pray. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to pound them over the head with your Bible. Let God move them from fear to faith. Secondly, are you curious about Him? People oftentimes will then move from fear to curiosity. After the shepherd's initial shock, they had to go check it out. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29 talks about we're aware of our needs, that God chose the foolish things in this world to, to shame the wise, to confound the wise. Who would have gone to shepherds to make this announcement? God did. And so my question to you, are you just content to hear about Jesus, or are you today willing to check out the facts? I make no assumption that everybody sitting in this room is a Christ follower. I can't make that assumption. I don't care if you've been at church for 40 years. What separates you from death to life, lost and found, is one simple gospel fact, Jesus. And the gospel simply is this, that you've given your life and you've allowed Jesus Christ to take your life and put it in His hands. It's simple, but so profound. And so after finding the baby, these shepherds are great examples of how they then began to think about faith. You see, curiosity doesn't make a commitment. Write that down. Curiosity doesn't equal commitment. These shepherds would have been unsaved shepherds had they not taken that next step of commitment. They investigated and then they responded. And thirdly, I'd say to you in verse 18, are you pursuing Him? Do you have this sense of expectation? Are the people that are close to faith, have they bought in completely? Are you sitting here maybe and you like these sermons, you like the music, you like the family atmosphere, but you've never personally ask Jesus into your heart? Are you content to just stand there with their mouths wide open in awe but not take the next step? Here's the next formula. Wonder doesn't equal surrender. They wondered, they were curious, they checked it out, but ultimately they had to respond. And so I'm going to ask you as a family To take 12 days to study and reflect and share deeply. You're going to get an email from me tonight. We'll double up a couple and we'll end on Christmas Day with the final day. 12 days of family devotions that you'll do in 10. And I'm going to ask you to pursue Him with all your heart over the next 10 days. That you would pray very specifically about who you're going to invite. We'll have the kind of service that'll be easy for you to invite someone to. Lots of music and a very simple message about Jesus and the gospel. And so, would you pray with me about our church and about this Christmas season? In the midst of baking all that banana bread that you give to your neighbors and all the relentless crowds you're battling and no matter how many times you swipe your card at Amazon.com, the most important thing is not all that stuff. It's not visiting Santa. The most important thing is, who is it that needs Jesus? Who during this season who's far from God needs Jesus? If you've been sitting in our church for several months, you know that I have a high view of this book. You see, the Bible changes lives, not because we just study it and intellectualize it, but because it has the power to change your life forever. And sometimes when we grow up with this, we kind of forget the transcendent nature of how God changes lives. I got the greatest job in the world, because I don't even think it's a job. I think it's a privilege. And nothing is better than opening your mouth, not in awe, but in acknowledgement that He's Lord. Amen? Thank you.